This is Archive Atlanta, episode 58, The Candler Building. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lemos. Hey everyone, happy Friday. Last weekend, I was able to record my very first podcast interview with the gracious help of Bill Nowicki, who produces the Married to Stories podcast. Together, we met Sarah Butler at the newly opened Candler Hotel in downtown Atlanta to discuss the stories of Asa Candler Sr., his son Asa Jr., and the construction of the Candler Building. When it opened at the turn of the 20th century, it was the tallest building in the city, and it contained the longest, unbroken, all-brass stairwell in America, running all the way up to the 17th floor. In the last two weeks, the building has reopened as the Candler Hotel, and it's absolutely gorgeous inside. It was an incredible experience to record this episode on the same floor as Junior's office. We didn't know exactly where, but, you know, we hoped maybe it was a room we were in. Uh, we learned about the family, the space, the drama, and the scandal that all happened inside this building. I am so excited for you guys to hear this, and I hope you enjoy it. Um, I have been researching the life of Asa Candler Jr., who owned Briarcliff Mansion out in Druid Hills uh, for almost three years. His story intersects with the Candler Building, so I ended up needing to learn quite a bit about the Candler Building to understand his story. Now, how do you feel when you came in this building? Because it just opened last Wednesday. My heart was racing. When I first started this project, it was still closed down. It looked, I mean, frankly, from the sidewalk, it looked condemned. And it, there was a big open question, would, it, would the hotel even happen? So for me, I came into this project when the future of this historic property was still very much in question. So this is amazing to be here. When you walked in, what was, what was the f- type of feelings you had? Uh, did the story start popping in your head? So I've read enough, I've seen enough photos, I know things that happen in certain parts of the building, and as I'm walking around looking at something, yeah, connections start to fire off in my head, but I think mostly the feeling that I have is this place was built to be a monument that would last hundreds of years. In fact, that's how it was quoted in the Atlanta Constitution. Asa Candler Sr.'s goal was for this to be a long-standing sort of gift to Atlanta that would be this amazing, you know, monument to man's ability to construct beautiful things. The fact that we preserve that, I feel like his vision, it has been preserved. And the, the building is sort of fulfilling what it's here to do. Talk a little bit about Coca-Cola, Asa Sr. and Asa Jr. Asa Candler Sr., um, he moved to Atlanta in the late 1800s. He, long story short, purchased the formula for Coca-Cola in 1888 and threw everything he had into it. Um, For the first few years, it, it really was just his entire obsession. Asa Candler Jr.'s story starts then. He was about eight years old at that point, and he was such a troublemaker at home that his dad said, I can't do both, build Coca-Cola, and deal with you, sent his son away to live in Cartersville. It's the only child of the family that was sent away. And so he could focus on his business and focus on growing it. Over the next, you know, 10 years or so, through, I mean, really masterful marketing, he turned this brand into a household name. And it, it you know, all of the signage, all of the outdoor murals and that sort of thing, that, that was all him, just trying to make sure that everybody knew what it was and wanted it. It's the pause that refreshes. He came up with slogans, it was this whole thing. Before Coca-Cola, his most successful product was called Botanical Blood Balm. Coca-Cola's better. (laughs) What? Yeah, Botanical Blood Balm, it'll cure what ails you. 
yeah, so Coca-Cola was meant to be a refreshing, relaxing, um, and really very importantly, non-alcoholic. He was a teetotaler, um, non-alcoholic way for you to, um, you know, f feel, feel well. It was, he didn't necessarily tout it as medicine, but it certainly he felt would make you feel better. He started making really big money right at the end of the 1800s. So 1890s, he's starting to really rake it in. And at that point, he and his family lived over in Seaboard Avenue, which is just past where Inman Park is. And he decides that he now needs, he's a big man, he's got a lot of money, he needs his mansion. So he decides to move into Inman Park, and there are a couple of reasons why he decides to move into Inman Park, but he chooses a location that is on the corner of Euclid Avenue and Elizabeth. And he builds what is now called Callan Castle, what he named Callan Castle, and it is this massive monumental home, 1902, 1903, and he hires an architect named George Murphy. One of the key important things to me as insight into Asa Candler Sr. is where Callan Castle is positioned and how it's positioned in the lot. It is directly across the street from Joel Hurt, who is a major name in infrastructure in Atlanta, and it's facing on an angle directly in the line of sight of Ernest Woodruff, also a major name in industry, and Joel Hurt, Ernest Woodruff, they're business buddies, right? And there's a little bit of a rivalry with them. And I've spoken with other folks that have looked into Candler history and they've come to the same conclusion that maybe Ernest Woodruff kind of felt like he made money in steel and transport and all these kind of big industries. Asa Candler Sr. made his money in soda pop. And there just wasn't the respect there. A lot of what Asa Candler Sr. did, you see him intersecting with the Woodruffs again and again and again. And that's relevant to this building. Late 1800s, less than a block from here, there's a building that looks remarkably like this one. It's called the Equitable Building. It's triangular, has columns on the outside, marble, it has a bank on the first floor. Who are the owners? Joel Hurt or Norris Woodruff. And at the time that they built it, it was the tallest building in Atlanta. One of the big features of the Equitable Building is that it has a continuous brass stairwell that is the largest continuous brass stairwell in all of Atlanta. So Asa Candler Sr. builds his house in 1902, 1903, and in 1904, he forms his bank and trust and the Candler Investment Company, and he breaks ground here on the Candler Building with the express goal of building the tallest building in Atlanta with the most extravagant materials of the bank on site to be the most important place in town. At that point, we're, we're well outside of the business district. There are a lot of people that are going, this is too far of a hike. We don't want to go this far to get out to the Candler building. So a lot of what you see after he builds it is he and his son, Ace Candler Jr., who then ran all of his real estate holdings, did a lot of investment just in this area to try to justify moving people out to this area to try to make the Candler building the center of Atlanta's world. 1904, they break ground and very quickly realized that there's nothing but solid granite down there. So it takes six months, and this is before we have these big construction machines, right? So, and there are photos of these crews just manually down there trying to just dig out this huge, huge granite foundation. So they end up, what the Candler Building is, is this rock solid building because it was built on this massive slab of granite, and then they poured concrete, and all of the steel structure is embedded in that. Even by today's standards, this is a massive steel structure. It was a big deal to create a building like this of all steel. Wow. 
that was another thing that the equitable building had as its feature. A lot of parallels there. Um, I actually didn't know about the equitable building thing. I knew about the rivalry. And when I was digging in and, and sort of make sure I had all of my research together for this interview, I saw a reference. I was reading about the craftsman who did the continuous brass stairwell here. It's 17 floors of continuous brass from top to bottom. And it was a major deal when they opened it. It was a symbolic of the extravagance of the build. And it said he had hired the finest craftsman in the country, the oldest brass craftsman. Nobody could, could meet his skill. Guess what other building he worked on? The equitable building. He hired the same guy. That's crazy. So how did Junior get from Cartersville back into the family fold? So Asa Junior was sent away to Cartersville to live with Asa Senior's sister. So that's his aunt, um, Aunt Sissy, um, Aunt Florence. She had an all-girls school. So Asa Junior, who I, I'll probably alternate calling him Buddy, that his family knew him as Buddy, he was sent out there and was the only boy in an all-girls school for a few years. And it, it, Asa Sr. had grown up with her and thought that she'd be really good calming influence on him. And so he really was sending his son out someplace that he thought would better him. But he still was very rambunctious. He got into a lot of trouble. He learned how to smoke. He learned how to shoot dice <laughs> with friends. And uh, when it was time for him to leave school, he was going to move home. And Asa Sr. said, oh, no, 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 don't get unpacked. You're going out to Emory. So they send him out to Emory out in Oxford, Georgia. That's before it's here in town. And he goes out to Emory. And he just raises hell the whole time he's out there. His freshman year, he's voted class pugilist. Uh, he, they even had that? They did not usually. But if you read their yearbooks, they would have normal, they would have sort of your normal, your usual nominations. And then they would have some humorous ones that they could lob in. I've only seen one other example of a class having a class pugilist. He was one. He and his older brother Howard, Charles Howard, um, they were both out there at Emory, and their uncle, Warren Candler, Bishop, later Bishop Warren Candler, was the president of the school. And they lived in the dean's house, what's now the dean's house, it was the president's house then, lived with him. Got into so much trouble, skipped school, got poor grades. There's letters on file at Emory's library of Asa Sr. begging them to please behave. And what do I have to do? I've given you every advantage. Why can't you just behave? Begging them. And little side letters to Charles Howard saying, can't you keep your brother in line? What are we going to do with Buddy? He barely graduates. And he goes to move home. And Asa Sr. says, no, 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 don't unpack. You're going to California sends him out to Los Angeles because Asa Senior, this is 1999, or 1899 rather, sends him out to Los Angeles, they're going to start up West Coast operations. It's time to bring Coca-Cola to the West Coast. Mm. Perfect. Buddy can go away. Asa Senior has a cousin who's out there. He's like, keep an eye on him. Well, that cousin really liked to drink and smoke and party, introduced Asa Junior to drink and smoke and partying. And as you might guess, the office did not run well, um, <laughs> very nearly failed. So he's out there about a year and change. Asa Sr. sends Howard out there and says, for the love of God, get your brother in line. Howard writes back, and, it's, and a lot of these letters aren't preserved, but you can see Asa Sr.'s response is going, I trust you, I trust your judgment, let's make a change, brings him home. Doesn't really tell him why he's bringing him home, just says, you know what, just come, don't worry about the office, just come on home, just get on that train, it'll be fine. Meanwhile, He's working with a man named William Witham, who lived here in Atlanta. He was a banker and investor and that sort of thing. And William Witham owned a cotton mill north of here in Hartwell, Georgia. It's three trains you had to get on in order to get there. Middle of nowhere, very close to the South Carolina border. Asa Sr. 
buys this cotton mill, and Buddy gets home and he says, no, 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 don't unpack. You're going to Hartwell. <laughs> Sends him out there, makes him the secretary treasurer, and says, you know what, if you do your job someday, you're going to hold all the stocks. Now, there are letters on file from Buddy when he gets out there, and he's very contrite and going, my parents love me. They were right. I fell in with the wrong people. I'm going to fly the straight and narrow now. I'm going to run this company. I'm going to do great. But it's really boring out there. And he's been introduced to something that's really fascinating, automobiles. So it's 1900, 1901. He buys an automobile, spends all his time on that, driving back and forth, I mean steamers, driving back and forth here and back, coming into town to get auto parts. He's not minding the mill, and the mill is failing. It's one of the only businesses in Asa Candler Sr.'s sort of portfolio that ever failed. So Asa Jr. gets married, he has a family, and unfortunately in 1905 there's a big blizzard that comes through and his baby son, who is Asa III, gets sick while all, while all the streets are iced over and the lines are down and the baby dies. He's not able to wire home to tell Asa Sr. that his grandson and namesake has passed. They get off the train with the little coffin in their hands and Asa Sr. says, I can't have you that far away anymore, you have to come home. And that's when he's invited to come home. So now we're talking 1906 going into 1907. And he puts him up over in Old Fourth Ward, just Fourth Ward. <laughs> it's old now, it wasn't then, uh, on, on Jackson Street, gets him a house over there and says, we're also going to have you build a house over here in Inman Park. And by the way, have you met my architect, George Murphy? George Murphy builds Asa Candler Jr.'s first Atlanta home that he owns. And it's right there on Euclid, doesn't exist anymore. It's where that park bulldozed through. That first year that he's home, Asa Sr. says, well, we'll just call you a Coca-Cola clerk, but really doesn't want him involved with Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola is too valuable. He cannot let Buddy get his hands on it and mess things up. So about a year later, this building is, is about to open in 1907, and he says, great, you're now managing Candler Investment Co. You can manage the Candler building. You will become, you'll do all the leasing. You're the leasing agent. You'll get people hired and fired. You'll find tenants. You'll take care of it. That becomes Buddy's job. And this building becomes his whole world, his whole sense of identity. It makes him the big businessman that he always wants to be recognized as. And from that point forward, this is where in every directory he's listed as the leasing agent or the manager of the Candler building. And at first, his office is in the basement, which I always thought was kind of funny. Of course, the basement here was kind of a big deal. It was fully tiled out. Um, it had what were described as the most beautiful baths in all of Atlanta. There was a swimming slash plunging pool down there. There was a laundry. There, there was a barber shop. And so he had his office down there. And the important thing is that meant he could see people coming and going, the movers and the shakers coming and going. And he was really good at networking. So he was really good at getting tenants to come in. Eventually, later, he moved up to the second floor maybe this room, I don't know, <laughs> we don't have a directory. It was, it, was, it was room 222 at some point. Ace's senior was up on the very top floor, great big room up on the top floor. Of course, he had the best room. The, the windows up there, these big arched windows, he had a beautiful view of all of downtown. Later, when Ace's senior became mayor of Atlanta in 1916, he moved down to the third floor, and he split his time between City Hall and here. So he had a schedule where he'd be in City Hall, and then he would be here, and he would go back and forth. Uh, one of the things that, that is very interesting about this building is there, there wasn't necessarily a grand overarching plan. 
they had a general idea of what it was going to look like, how, you know, George Murphy obviously had the architectural plans, but in terms of the finishing, mm -hmm. the symbols, the actual, the, the carving and the artistry and all of that, they would find basically contractors and say, propose to us what you think you're going to do and tell us how much it would cost, which is why when you look around, you go, well, why the ram? Why the lion? Why the fish? It's not necessarily that the candlers had a lot of attachment to those symbols. Even the busts that are around the stairwell and around the outside, they're not necessarily symbolic for the candlers themselves. What they are is big, important men of industry and intellect. Who they actually were was up to the artist. And that's actually true of a lot of the, the Candler sort of architectures, like make it big, make it impressive, tell me what you're gonna do, but, but go for it. And there's not a lot of depth to the story of why this symbol, why that material. Talk about the coat of arms. So the Candlers were very much into family loyalty, and some of that comes from the, um, their motto, which is uh, faithful until death. I'm not going to attempt the Latin. And they have a shield, they have a coat of arms, and that was very important to them. And, and you find that, you know, Asa Candler Sr. would talk about that loyalty being so important and your name is everything and your integrity as a person and really living up to the value of your name and loyalty was very important to them. And that shield shows up on most Candler properties. To this day, if you visit Cowan Castle, there's a shield. If you visit the, uh, the, well, what is now the Greek Melkite Church, the yellow mansion that's out on Ponce on the edge of, of Druid Hills. You'll see shields there. There are shields at um, Lullwater, which is now the current Emory campus. That's the president's residence. There are shields all throughout that. That was Walter Candler's house. Briarcliff, which was Asa Jr.'s house, you'll find shield there. If you go to Callenwald, which was Howard, uh, Charles Howard's house, you'll find shields there. They were very much into it. So you come to the Candler building, and you walk through the, the doors on the peach tree side and you look up, there's a shield. It's the Candler shield. You walk in, you see a, a beautiful brass mail slot and there's a Candler shield. And there are Candler shields all over the place. There are Candler shields all over the city. I was curious how he got from kind of an outcast. You know, did he bring any of those crazy ways with him to his uh, job here at the Candler? Would you like a story? I would. <laughs> okay. I've got, I've got two really fun stories that have to do with the Candler family and the Candler building. And, and my favorite one, which I am writing for my website, acesbriarcliff.com. One thing to know about Asa Jr. is we wouldn't have the airport without him. Uh, back in 1909, Asa Jr. and his friend, very good friend, Ed Durant, huge into cars, really into racing. And Asa Jr. liked anything that was a vehicle and went fast. He got into airplanes, he got into trains, he got into cars, he was into bicycles in college. It was his thing. The previous year, America had gotten its first win at a Vanderbilt Cup race, and everybody was really excited about racing. The end of 1908, the Atlanta Automobile Association was started by Ed Inman here in town. They, they get started. 1909, Asa Jr., of course, he's, he's the one who holds all of the Candler Investment Company money. He and Ed Durant go out to Hapeville and they start buying up farmland. And they don't tell anybody what they're doing. When they're asked, one of them says, oh, I don't know, maybe we'll put a, a great big cemetery out here, which I thought was odd foreshadowing, seeing as he then went on to own Westview Cemetery. They put it all together and in the summer of 1909, they make an announcement, we're building a two-mile racetrack out here, the Atlanta Speedway. It's gonna be better than the, Indy, the Indianapolis racetrack. Atlanta's so much better than them. We're better than anyone, anybody should come here. 
So they bring in a bunch of contractors, use a lot of convict slash slave labor to build this two-mile oval. And in November of 1909, we have here in Atlanta Auto Week, Metropolitan Boulevard that heads south out of here. That was Stewart Avenue. That was the first truly paved road that was to provide a smooth ride for any of the attendees who brought their cars down. They ran streetcars out there. All of that went out to Hapeville. In November 1909, they have their races. There's a lot of fun stuff that happened. There's all kinds of stories that happened at that race. But long story short, Asa Jr. and his friend Ed Durant get into a fight. And suddenly they decide they can't be friends anymore. And it had to do with who was probably the most famous race car driver at the time, Barney Oldfield. He showed up with his manager and they created a ruckus and Buddy decided he'd rather side with the celebrity than his best friend and Ed Durant said I wash my hands of this whole friendship I gotta go and he walks off the track. Ace Sr. goes and says please forgive him on account of his youth he's he's impulsive you know how Buddy is he's 31 by the way on account of his youth. Ed and Ace Jr. decide they can't have anything to do with each other anymore and now all of the gossip rags in town are hearing about this and going this is amazing what's happening Buddy is so angry at Ed Durant. He's the president of the automobile club. Ed Durant is the secretary. He pulls in all the directors without Ed Durant and votes him out, replaces him with his brother-in-law, Bill Owens. Ed Durant finds out through the grapevine that he apparently no longer has a position with this automobile club that he helped to really build and create this track. So he starts going to the papers because he's like, I got to get my story out there first. And so he starts telling the papers that Asa Jr. is a spoiled child that Asa Sr. is wrapped around his finger, will do anything, he will tank the track if he needs to in order for his son to be successful. They own all of the stock in the Automobile Association, the track. So Ed Durant's going to the papers and he's, he's saying, this doesn't make any sense at all. Now the general manager of the track, Ed Clapp, sides with him and Asa Jr. says, you're gone too, and fires him. All throughout 1910, the newspapers are going crazy. Asa Jr. cannot handle the bad press. He's getting angrier and angrier about it. And so he finally goes to Ed Durant and says, you can't be in my building anymore. Now, Ed Durant had a suite here. He had a, a number of, of rooms. Ed Durant says, I have like six months left on my lease. You're not permitted to violate that contract. I'm going to stay here. Asa Jr. says, no, you won't. He has the master key. The, the key, the, there's a the whole locking system in this building each room had an individual key, but there was a master key, and there were master keys to all the bathrooms. He rekeys the door overnight, so Ed Durant can't get in there. And all of his, he's in insurance, and all of his paperwork is in there. He gets really, really angry. You can't lock me out of his office. Sure enough, he legally can't, so he has to let him back in. He legally can't violate the, the terms of the lease and kick him out. He can't change the locks, but what he can do is turn off the heat. It's February, which is the coldest month in Georgia, shuts off the heat. Ed Durant freezes, tries to come in, tries to make it, is so stubborn, is like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make this happen, and finally just can't anymore. He agrees to move out, and in April, I think he secures a new lease, and he moves out, and he says, fine, I'm done with this, and he says, just goes to show you the kind of spoiled child I've been dealing with. I love that a 31-year-old man, they're all calling a child, and his youth just tells you, tells you a little bit about Buddy. Now, true to a lot of the stories that I find around the Candlers, but, but mainly A.C. Candler Jr., Ed Durant disappears from the social scene. Wow. 
could tell you about the trial of the century. Oh, yeah, trial of the century. All right. So 1916, Asa Candler Sr. is elected mayor of Atlanta. Um, at that point, he sort of divested himself of Coca-Cola. He'd given it to his kids. His kids were managing it in 1916. They also got their inheritance. You start to see them kind of starting to live high on the hog. Um, he is mayor when the fire of 1917 comes through. He was instrumental in the city recovering from that, investing his own money and helping to establish housing for people who lost their housing. Uh, Asa Jr.'s house that was on Jackson is one of the houses that was destroyed in that fire. In 18, uh, 1918, he's in his office and a woman comes calling and her name is Margaret Hirsch. She knocks on the door and says, maybe you remember me from the Red Cross. Last year we got together because of the Red Cross. Do you remember me? He says, sure, have a seat. And she sits down and takes off her hat, which sounds like nothing, but it's something. And she says, I'm here on behalf of the Humane Society. I want to talk about animal cruelty. And he says, okay, let's talk. And she goes, and now this is up on the third floor. So this is, this is in suite 329, which is the office that he occupied when he wasn't at City Hall. She says, I want to talk to you about animal cruelty. Oh my goodness, there's a man out on the ledge. And he turns around and looks out the window and says, where? And she says, there's a white man in a suit out on the ledge. Oh my goodness. And he turns around and says, I don't see anything. And she says, he's out there. He's really out there. So he gets up from his chair and walks to the window and says, I don't see anyone out on the ledge. She quickly takes off her coat, runs to the office door and opens it, where a man named Handsome Bill Cook is standing there. He'd been peeping through the, the, the letter slot and walks in and says, ah, a society lady and our honorable mayor. Isn't this nice? She's taking her hat off and her coat. Clearly something has happened. It gets seamier later. Asa Sr. had been through extortion before. He, this was, he knew immediately what was happening. So he yells, get buddy! And he runs out of his office and he runs down those brass stairs. He runs down there to the second floor, grabs buddy, runs up. When he gets back, Bill Cook is gone. But Margaret Hirsch is still there and she's crying. And later they say it seemed like she was waiting for something. Asa Sr. walks back in with Buddy. She looks at him and she says, is that your son? He says, yes. And she goes, I got to go. And she starts running. It just runs out of the building, does not want to deal with him. Asa Sr. calls up his friend, Forrest Adair. Forrest and George Adair manage a lot of his real estate holdings. He calls up Forrest and says, I got problems. I need you to get involved. I don't know what's going on. So Forrest Adair reaches out, locates these people, meets with them, and says, well, what's going on here? Now, Cook and Hirsch, they're saying they don't really know each other, and they're saying nothing happened, but oh, but something did happen, and oh, when the world finds out about this, this is going to be a big deal, and wouldn't it be a shame if everybody found out about this, and you're a wealthy man, maybe you could pay us to keep this quiet. So Margaret Hirsch says, in order to leave town, I, I think if my husband found out about this, he would kill me and kill you, and we don't want that. But I need to be able to live at a standard of living that's appropriate for me, so I need you to set up some kind of fund, not just pay me now, not pay me next year, because you could die at any time, but set up a fund for me. About $3,000 a year feels about right. Now, this is 1918 money. That's a lot of money. And Forrest Adair is like, he's not going to give you that kind of money. And she says, well, frankly, I should ask for a half a million. Now, just a year or so before, it became big news that Asa Candler Sr. had put down a million dollars for Emory. And she says, if he can be that generous and put down a million dollars for Emory, surely he can afford 500000 for little old me. And she says, you know, I've always been involved in charity work. I did Red Cross. I've done you know, Humane Society. I could change the world, but the problem is I don't have money. 
if I just had money, think of all the good I could do in the world. And frankly, I think I can make better decisions about this money than Asa Candler Sr. can make. So she's got all these reasons why she deserves money. Now, Bill Cook, handsome Bill Cook, and if you see a picture of him, that had to have been met ironically. Uh, he, on the other hand, says he doesn't want money. He used to be a bad man, but he's been to Billy Sunday's church service, and he's a converted fella, and he just cares about the righteousness of our mayor, and he's best buddies with Margaret Hirsch's husband, and he cannot stand the idea of her husband being cheated on, and all he wants is for everyone to just come clean. It's, it's a mess. And he says, I'm going to go and I'm going to pull together a grand jury and you're gonna, the, the mayor is going to end up on trial. And Asa Sr. goes, well, no. And he calls up his brother, the judge. John Slaughter calls him in and says, what are we going to do here? Well, they get a grand jury pulled together. And immediately the jury is like, we heard everything. It's cool. Go get Hirsch and Cook and go put them in jail. So they put them in the Atlanta jail, the tower, the infamous tower, right? They put them in jail. And they set their bail at like $3,000 again in 1918 money. That's a lot of money. The court case does not take long to approach. And they put Bill Cook on trial first. And he gets up there. He's up on the stand. And he says, well, I came in and I saw the mayor. And the mayor had obviously been in some kind of indiscretion. And I found this. And he reaches into his pocket. And he whips out a pair of silk bloomers and waves <laughs> it at the jury. And the whole audience goes, <gasps> and gas, and they take the, the underwear away from him, and they roll it up in a, a newspaper so nobody has to look at it. They put Asa Sr. on the stand and ask him what, what's going on, and they decide that they need him to look at the bloomers just to, to disavow them, right? So they take the paper, and they very carefully unroll it just so he can look at the underwear. Now, this is a very, very proud religious man. He was a teetotaler. He's faithful to his wife. I mean, of all of the drama that I've heard about this man, I can tell you he was never unfaithful to his wife. He really was a moral man when it came to that. And they show him on the stand the underwear, and he says, I've never seen those in my life. And they go to put them down on the table, and the bloomers slide out of the paper, and everyone in the audience comes out of their chairs. Everyone's trying to look at the silk underwear because it's 1918, and this is an amazing thing to happen in a court. So they keep the proceeding pretty tight. The judge, anything the defense brings up that says, maybe we need to delay, maybe this is a problem. Listen, he's the mayor. How can we pull together a jury from these people? And the judge is like, I don't care, I don't care, I don't care. Judge Benjamin Hill, he's like, I don't care. Let's get this case out of here. Dismisses the jury. 27 minutes, they come back, and they say guilty on three counts of extortion, $1,000 fine, and 12 months on a chain gang hard labor and they send him back to the tower. About a week later, now it's Margaret Hirsch's chance to be on trial. This one ends up even more of a circus because she hires this guy who's a former judge who is just bombastic and nuts in his questioning. And then they, they actually bring in Bill Cook on the stand because then they are turning on each other and they're going, well, listen, you weren't friends with Bill Cook, but wasn't he secretly in love with you? And they're trying to paint it like he's just this crazed man who is following her around. And yes, Asa Candler Sr. definitely attacked her in his office, but Bill Cook was not her friend. He was just a bad man that was following her around, and that's just a coincidence. And they bring in her cellmate from the tower, who ends up being held in contempt of court because it turns out that clearly the lawyers paid her for her testimony. It is bananas. Bill Cook's trial, real quick. This one, I think, went into a third day. They come back after 25 minutes, and they say guilty on all three counts. She gets a $1,000 fine, and she has to go out to the prison farm for 12 months. That's where she is sent. That, at the time, made national news. 
Yeah, that's pretty salacious, though, really. There's a lot going on. So good. I mean, pages and pages and pages of interviews. When the Candlers were in trouble, it made news all the way out to California. It was in the New York Times. People were interested in knowing the Coca-Cola millionaires maybe had done something wrong. So if you are interested in any more of this information, um, in particular, my research is around Asa Candler Jr., um, especially as it relates to Briarcliff Mansion, but it's really his whole history from cradle to grave. I'm still filling it out with some of these anecdotal stories, but for the most part, the, the, the main, his full history is there with a timeline. It's at asasbriarcliff.com. That's A-S-A-S briarcliff.com. Um, there is a form there that you can contact me. It has been amazing the number of people who have reached out to me who have Candler stories and have said, did you know about this? Did you know about that? I also have people that have contacted me that have the completely wrong information. The legacy around the Candlers is so big and has evolved wildly. That oral history, that the way it creeps over the years, especially Asa Jr. and Briarcliff, the craziest stories are out there about them. I want to set those stories straight partly because I just want the history to be correct, but partly because, frankly, the reality is so much better than the rumors. The, what I learned about Asa Candler Jr. and about that family is so much better than these swirling rumors around, you know, Briarcliff Mansion and is it haunted and tunnels and was he crazy and yada yada. Was he crazy? Mm, yeah, kinda, but not in the way that you think. So acesbriarcliff.com, lots of information there. And if you know anything about the Candlers, please contact me. I would, I would love to hear it. Hey guys, I'm back. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did and learned as much as I did. Our original recording is twice as long. I was forced to edit it down to a manageable length, but what I did do was save at least four bonus stories to release to my Patreon contributors. So if you head on over to patreon.com forward slash archive Atlanta for just $1, you can get this bonus content along with extra episodes every month. Remember to rate and review the podcast, and if you enjoyed this episode, share it with someone else who might love it too. Hope everyone has a great weekend, and I'll talk to you next week.